Hi guys, I'm Neeraj Mulani. I'm the director of community at Product 10X. And today we are starting a new podcast series, The Future Of. In this podcast, we'll be joined by thought leaders from various different industries as we try to crystal ball gaze on what the future holds for some of the most important industries and sectors. And to kick things off, I'm joined by Shiv Gaglani, co-founder and CEO of Osmosis, and Jeffrey Roche, associate partner at Product 10X. Thank you folks for joining in. Thanks for having us. Shiv, I'll start with a simple question. For the uninitiated, could you spend a couple of minutes explaining what is osmosis? Yeah, happy to. So I was a medical student at Johns Hopkins about a decade ago when my co-founder Ryan and I met as anatomy partners. And we both had backgrounds in neuroscience and education. And we realized that we were forgetting things in medical school almost as quickly as we were learning about them. And so being having research backgrounds, we both looked at the literature of what are some evidence-based ways we can teach in general better, but also uh, teach medicine and healthcare, which is different than learning language or math. It's different because health education is vast. There's way too much information for any one person to know. It's dynamic. We saw that over the past couple of years with COVID, where new variants were coming out, new treatments, and a better understanding over time. And that happens across medicine. And number three, it's high stakes, right? If you forget how to factor, or you forget how to conjugate a French verb, you may embarrass yourself, but you're not going to hurt anybody. Whereas if you forget to prescribe bleomycin, a pulmonary function test is somebody taking bleomycin for, for cancer, you could actually hurt their life, hurt the life of their family and hurt your career in the process. And so because of that, we wanted to build a platform from the ground up that was specific to learning healthcare. And we fast forward a couple of years, the team that used to run Khan Academy Health and Medicine joined us and actually started producing these amazing videos with over 2000 videos of them that have basically virtualized medical nursing PA and other health professional programs. We just signed our first physical therapy program last week as an example. And so we've reached a state where we're the largest health education channel on YouTube. And we're just getting started having joined Elsevier less than a year ago. And I'd love to double click on that and try and understand really from your perspective, what about this segment, this particular segment intrigued you? Yeah, it was uh, like a lot of startup stories. We were just basically trying to solve our own problem. There was a lot of empathy with the end user because we were the end user. We were trying to learn more efficiently. And that was for us and our 118 other classmates at Johns Hopkins. But uh, we've since expanded quite a bit and now have to have a lot of empathy and do have a lot of empathy for nursing, PA, pharmacy, and all these other health professional programs. And clearly with COVID causing issues, both with increased demand for healthcare, chronic conditions, the aging population and COVID, and then also on the supply side, more healthcare workers are leaving their profession. We don't have enough to treat all the people who have the demand. We have to make be more efficient at how we educate our future healthcare professionals. And if anything, over as we kept working on it, kept getting more growth, we've become more committed to the vision, which ultimately the big area audacious goal for us most is to, is to educate a billion clinicians, caregivers, patients, family members by 2025. We're about 10, just over 15% of the way there. Fantastic. I think the true entrepreneurial spirit, you see a problem and if you don't see a solution, you go and build one. Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and what were those early days of building Osmosis like? Yeah. In, in some ways, I'll be honest, in some ways it was more fun. I like, I like zero to one. You're in the trenches with people who are working for free or very little money. All of our early employees are still with us. Caleb and I actually, he's our, he was our first employee after the founders. And he and I were doing everything, customer support, we were traveling to sell B2B sales, et cetera. 
And now we're going to Madrid with Elsevier for a big sales conference, international sales conference, fast forward a number of years. But early days, it's product market fit. That's what every startup is looking to achieve at the beginning. And it's a constant dynamic thing because the product needs to change, the market changes, the competitive landscape changes. So you have to not, it isn't like you achieve product market fit and then you're done. You wash your hands. We had to learn a lot. We learned we were, our pricing model was off initially. It was a one-time fee. We changed that to a, a subscription, obviously at the right time, which is what companies do. We were 100% B2C, very much top of the funnel, YouTube, Wikipedia to the platform, and then conversion rate optimization. Learned a lot, read a lot of books, uh, but now we're about 40% B2B. We have over 180 institutional partners around the world. And one thing many of your founders and people listening to this may, may understand is their investors and acquirers are very interested in certain types of revenue, predictable, repeatable, scalable. And so having made that switch to SaaS and B2B was really effective as far as the pricing model. The teammates, obviously we've had to, one of the core growth unlocks for osmosis is once we got to about 15, 20 people, we actually sat down and went through and decided upon our culture, which also has changed and evolved over time. But we went to a retreat in Tahoe and we nailed down our vision, mission, values, which are the same. The one I just mentioned, the billion goals, the same as it was several years ago when we did this. And so having that North Star, having a team that's totally aligned, knows where we're going, why we're doing it is critical as we break through. And so, yeah, there are a lot of, lot of lessons learned and we could spend hours talking through all of them. But one thing I'd like to share too is the importance of mentorship and finding the right people around you. I'm very good friends and stay good friends with my mentors. That's one of the most unexpected things coming out of osmosis is that how close the relationships are with people like Peter Frischoff, who is, we call the godfather of osmosis. He started Medscape. My board member, Mitch Rothschild, he and I are going to retreat next week in Costa Rica. So there's all these like examples of people who are like lifelong friends now. And I think that's one of the best benefits is we're not just solving a problem or creating a company, making money, whatever it is. It's developing these lifelong relationships that, that are probably the, the best part of building a company, I think. You know, Shiva, I, I want to highlight the culture part because I think oftentimes in startups, even when you're 20 people, oftentimes people may not think about how important that is from the vantage point of not just for your internal colleagues, but also how that translates to your external. And I can highlight it because you and knowing your colleagues for several years now, that culture is really well-developed. And I don't say that just because you're here. I say it because I've experienced it. And I remember the first time I met members of your business development team talking about osmosis and the work that they do. And literally the next week on that call, I shared how my wife and I were at the time having our third child. And the next week we get a package in the mail from osmosis celebrating we're going to have this birth. And after I was on, on the Raise the Line podcast, I got a mug that's still in my, is in my office to this day, because how more importantly, have you built your culture to really raise the line in healthcare? And that idea of raise the line, I know osmosis has lived that out during COVID and we'll talk about that later, but I just wanted to highlight that cultural part because I know you've been a big leader uh, in really making sure that that happens. But on that, I'm curious, I don't want you to, I don't want to ask the question from the secret sauce of it, because obviously I wouldn't want you to give your secret sauce, but when you speak about culture, what has been important to you as the CEO to really set that apart for your osmosis colleagues in a way that you've done it so well that I know it has translated to your customers? Well, Jeffrey, thanks, thanks so much for sharing that. I'm really glad to hear that. And that's exactly why we set the culture is that other people 
within the organization than live it. And at a certain scale, you can't know every teammate, you can't know every customer, you can't know every partner. And being able to train or first recruit people who have shared values, but then really highlight and augment those values by being part of this company is really important. Characters doing the right thing when no one's looking is an example, is a quote I love. My mom always used to share that with me. Company culture is to make sure that people in your company do the right thing too when their CEO isn't looking. And so I'm glad to hear that, that you've experienced that and exactly right. I will gladly share the secret sauce. We we want people, and it isn't something we just developed ad hoc. It's very kind of you. But two books I really recommend for anybody looking to create a culture. One is the late Tony Shea's Delivering Happiness. Obviously, Zappos led on a lot of these culture initiatives. And Zappos has had some issues in recent times, but culture is dynamic too, where like from a period of X of point A to point B in time, it can be a very special thing and a very growth unlock thing. That's what we found at Osmosis. But it needs nurturing, it needs continuous nurturing. And number two, the second book is Ben Horowitz's What You Do Is Who You Are, which is the key is it isn't just values that you put on a board or you repeat it on team meetings. It's really lived. And Tony Shea had this great quote, which is the way you figure out your company's culture is you look at the people around you in the room who are core to building the company and make their personal values, the company values. And we made, we did some fun things with it. We took all these values. We turned that into a, we actually literally embodied the values into what we call the Osmosian person, like the Vitruvian man. And every value has an organ or body part affiliated with it. Imagine more is the brain. Start with the heart is caring. It's the heart. Have each other's backs is obviously the spine spinal column. And so the key is not just internal, as you mentioned, Jeffrey, I think it's really insightful that you said this. It's also external. It's not just how we treat our teammates, but it's, we export these cultural values to our partners, right? So we often find that they start behaving similarly, right? If you light someone else's candle, it doesn't diminish yours. You get to light their candle and then they can light other candles, but vice versa. We have the privilege of working with hundreds of institutions that are training the next generation of healthcare providers or current healthcare providers and their vision, their mission, their values are ours. So it's really much, it's a very synergistic compounding effect if done genuinely and authentically. And I will say that there have been struggles. We've hired some people who just did not fit in the culture. I've had days where I don't want to live any of the values. So there are struggles and I think it's really good, important to know that, but there needs to be a repair mechanism whenever there are cultural ruptures. Yeah, I, I appreciate you sharing that because I was just recently at Becker's annual meeting. And one of the topics we were uh, speaking about. I saw that, by the way, I'll embarrass you. You uh, you got to take a picture with uh, Magic Johnson. And, and who's the other one? There was like Peyton, several. Peyton awesome. Manning. Yeah, Peyton Manning, Peyton Manning. and, and uh, former awesome. UN Secretary Nikki Haley. Oh, wow. And John Goodman, actually. John Goodman really? was another. It, it's interesting because healthcare is an industry that arguably still has work to do when it comes to culture. And often feel that in the startup space, there's a lot that actually healthcare can learn from those in the startup space. And it's not because it's about being small. It, to your point, is about being authentic in how you develop that. And so I appreciate you sharing that because I know we believe very strongly in culture as well. And culture has to be interwoven into every aspect of your organization at all levels. And I applaud you because I have vividly and clearly seen how you and your team have done that. It doesn't matter what their title is. They're living out the values. I mean, clearly they know they're, they have to, and clearly it goes up to your, your mentors and your board and such as well. And so we appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. No, thanks for sharing that. Jim, I'd love to go a level deeper here, uh, especially from the perspective when you mentioned that you also have to get the feedback from the team on the culture that, you know, 
what are their values and you try and fit some of that to your company values right how do you manage that fine balancing act of retrofitting some of the individual values to company and then also ensuring that some of the company values flow down top to bottom yeah so first of all i think it has to go top to bottom i think whenever something that's really destroyed a lot of companies i've seen is when the leaders Again, it's what they say, not what they do. When they don't actually, one of our company values is to reach further. It's learning and growing. It's constantly trying to get better. And so we have this balanced books channel on our Slack and I post there probably the most. I'm always reading and growing and like leading from example as far as growth, finding mentors for teammates. And if I stop doing that, if I just get someone else do it, then it's, we're the most visible people at this at the level as the founders, as the as leaders of a company. And so that's the quickest way to destroy culture is if the leader stops behaving that way. That being said, it can't be autocratic top down. I think it's a, there's a quote that you can train for skills, but not attitude. One of the things I've realized too with culture and the way, reason we broadcast it openly, it's part of our application process too, is that you some, at, some, at a certain level, you can't really train it. We're trying to find, we're putting basically a beacon, a homing beacon up and saying, look, if you want to be an engineer here, if you want to be a, a customer success manager, if you want to be a content illustrator or a salesperson, this is what we stand for. And we're trying to make sure that the right people come in the application process to begin with. Sure, we can help, we can provide tactics and tools and we've developed those. And we have a little process, as Jeffrey mentioned, where if we hear a partner or someone saying something like they're going to have a child, we have a team that we send them a quick note. Hey, this partner has this milestone coming up, put it in the calendar, send them a onesie. Like it's, but it's done authentically. It's still, a, we have to listen to the partner. We have to understand, we have to genuinely celebrate it. So we make it easier. We reduce the friction to then embody or act on the values. However, it's important not. It's important for the front lines that you recruit to actually live it, right? Because trying to train somebody to care or to be growth mindset, very difficult, very difficult, I found. And so it's better just to hire the right people. There's 8 billion people in the world. You can find people who care about what you care for. The last thing I'll say, it's dynamic. Again, product market fits dynamic, culture is dynamic. So we build in these, we use Office Vibe as survey tools. Periodically, we ask questions. When are we not living by our culture? What are our blind spots? And certainly we say, we can say start with the heart. And during COVID, we didn't lay off anybody for financial reasons. We, we made that clear. I said, before we lay off anybody for financial reasons, my salary will go to zero. It was really, it helped with kind of culture during those uncertain times. But at the same time, like we can't give everything, everyone, everything they want. We can't care so much for them that like we can't care for the customers because we can't develop deliver product because we can't hire more people. So it's a trade-off and ultimately it gets messy and it's in the margins that where it gets messy, where those decisions are made as to who to keep on the team, who not to keep, who to recruit, who not to recruit, what products, features to build. That can sound abstract unless you've lived it, but, but believe me, hopefully you get to a scale and many readers are probably well beyond that scale where they can relate to some of the challenges I've just described there of trade-offs. Shiv, there, there's an element there that's important. And yesterday I was reading an, a LinkedIn post from Dr. Jonathan Fisher, who I'm sure you knew well. And uh, he was arguing and people have a learning and a growth mindset. And he went through to explain, particularly as it relates to whether it's ed tech or health tech or anything regarding health education, that everyone has to view that there, there really is no failure. Everything is an opportunity to learn. And that you have to use your frustrations, your obstacles, and really have a focus on improving your situation and viewing everything from this, from the mindset of it. I'm in the temporary challenge now, but I'm going to learn from that, grow from it and do better next time. I'm curious from your experience and your evolution, particularly in the startup ecosystem, which we know is hard, but we know you've had 
tremendous success, significant VC, significant fundraising success because you've had the mission, but you've also had the impact and others have recognized that. Can you share anything that has helped you and the team continue down that? Because I know all of us know sometimes you get tired and it's hard when you don't get this and you, you don't get that, but you got to keep going. And can you share anything that you think would be important from that end? Definitely. Well, thanks for that. And one of my favorite books is The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. It's a stoicism, stoic book. I highly recommend The Daily Stoic. He has several good books related to that. Same with William Irvine is another great stoic author and super recommend that. They're probably one of the I would say stoicism and then school of life are the top two resources I recommend for anybody who's, who wants to develop more kind of resilience and more balance in their work life. And the reason I mentioned that is because, yeah, we definitely get challenges and we often have this narrative fallacy and this hindsight bias where it's easier to remember the good times and think about family vacations, right? You've certainly, if you're like my family, you've certainly had arguments on family vacations, but all the pictures are taken when we're smiling and happy. And so what I remember most is the happy moments. And so the same thing with the company, like I remember some of the milestones, how we felt when we set the culture retreats. There were tough times. And I think the key part of that is you have to have people around you who have your back and you have to have their back and it's a trust fall. And so this is one reason co-founders are helpful um, is that oftentimes when one is up, uh, when one is down, the other one can be neutral or up and hopefully pull them out. It's very rare that both are down or they just figure it out. And that's even more so when you add more people, we've had people who join osmosis at the leadership level, who've been extremely helpful with, with that, those kind of ups and downs. And I think you can do it alone, but you have to have deep mental fortitude, I think, to get there. And again, this is where advisors and mentors are really helpful. Again, some of my advisors like Jerry Hartung, he was, he built and sold a very successful continuing medical education company. He's been, he was help, obviously helping me with growth tactics and, and actual growing their business. But his most important contribution has been actually to our culture and to me as a mentee, as an individual going through some personal life challenges, just sitting down with me and talking through them. And I think that's what you want to look for. And that's why it goes from just a transactional VC or investor relationship and can get into a kind of a lifelong deep friendship. I think Chip, this is very heartening and like great insight in terms of evolution of a founder. I'd also want to go a little macro here and understand your viewpoint on the evolution of edtech, especially from a founder's perspective, how have you seen that evolution come along? Yeah, education attracts a lot of mission-driven people and always has. And so I think that's one of the benefits of being in education or healthcare versus some other fields where it's not as naturally, maybe more lucrative, but it's not as naturally mission full of mission-driven people. One worry is if you're trying to build a for-profit ed tech company, recruit a lot of people from nonprofits or academia, it's sometimes hard to have them wear the hat that like, look, there are business goals that we have to be able to hit in order to keep growing. So that's a, that's just a challenge as far as recruiting. There's a pro and a con to that. EdTech's obviously had a, a massive moment last few years with COVID, accelerating the adoption of online delivery mechanisms. Some really great success stories out of there. But then just like Peloton, some of the major, major EdTech publicly traded companies right now, like Chegg, are really suffering to you. And so I think it's important for anyone in life. So this is good advice for any founder, but also for companies that your stock price or your valuation is not your value, is not your independent value. These companies have done really great work over many years and it's important, and you as a founder have as well. And just because you got a 10 million valuation or 50 million, like your sense of self-worth and identity should not fluctuate based on these 
circumstances that may or may not be within your control. Sure, you have some impact on them, but you, you don't need to, to internalize that as much. And again, that's shared of stoicism, le- learning what goals and you can internalize and where your control fields and boundaries are. EdTech, I think, is here to stay. It has a lot of winners in the market. There's a lot more funding than there ever has been. You have to just go to ASU GSV to see that. There have been several major unicorns go public out of that. Companies like Udemy recently had a great IPO. Coursera, obviously. Things just take longer than we think. And I think there's a lot more growth ahead of us. The problem with education is that I feel like oftentimes we talk about it in a vacuum where it isn't really outcomes driven. In health education, it's pretty obvious that the outcome is patient patient health. That's why we train providers. And with osmosis, that's what gives us our resilience is that we realize we're not just training healthcare professionals. We're also getting to the point where we're training actual patients. And the more patients know things about their bodies and educated and use that to change their behavior and quit smoking and eat healthier and wear masks and get vaccinated, the more they do that stuff, the less healthcare delivery we actually need and the less expensive the healthcare system will be. So I think education is a great lever and we have a lot of upside to go in it, but there are obviously some, some challenges related to companies that don't actually tie their bottom lines to actual real outcomes. And increased competition. When you think of it's now become the, often you'll hear the sexy place to go in. And I think the thing that I always say is you can't, you just can't, at least in my opinion, you can't just throw money at a solution if it's not really a good solution, particularly in the, in the ed tech space. Because I think people expect quality far more than ever before. And they also expect the same level, if not sometimes better engagement than you would even if it's in person. And it has to still have an authenticity uh, around it. I'm, I'm curious, would you agree with that? Uh, absolutely. And I think that's been one of the best things for osmosis is that the authenticity just comes straight out from the fact that the founding story was me and med, like me and med school trying to do this better. So it just lives and breathes it. And I think it's tough because some companies reach the scale, and, which is a good problem to have. It's a first world problem where the founder is no longer the leader and for a whole variety of reasons. And those are amazing companies that manage to still grow and instill deep in the roots. Walt Disney is an example where the founder's long time dead, but like the values, the culture there has been so positive over many years and they've gotten the right stewards. It's one reason we joined Elsevier. Elsevier has been around since 1880. Very few companies have lasted over 100, 140 years as they've had, they have. So there's some secret sauce there to learn from. And I think in terms of the culture in general, and I think we're seeing this more and more across the globe. And it's being called an always on culture of the digitally native pupils, where there are concerns about shortening attention spans and people not being able to focus long enough. And at this time, obviously, we do see a lot of educators believing that technology is able to engage students longer and in an easier manner. What's your experience like with this, especially with health tech education? It's a really good question, Niraj. And I say 20, 12 years ago, after I graduated college, my best friend from college and I, his name's Ilyas, we went to his home country of Tunisia. And I distinctly remember he gave me this book called The Shallows, which was about the short, exactly what you're talking about. Back in 2010, the shortening attention span because of technologies, internet, smartphones had come out two years prior, two, three years prior. And it seems so trite now. It seems like such a, what are you talking about? 2010? That was the, like, what? There was no TikTok. There was no Snapchat. There was no Facebook and Instagram. You know, or There was Facebook, but there wasn't Instagram in the same capacity we know now. And so 
it's even gone worse. And I think this is a challenge because people have become just consumers of information. And Jeffrey mentioned competition in EdTech. Actually, the way we look at competition in health tech, there's so many other companies like Turio, Amboss, Online MedEd. We're friends with all of them. Like we know these founders. I see them at conferences I, on their podcast. I've had them on our podcast. The reason is I don't think we're competing with each other. Certainly for a deal here and there we are. But as far as what we're doing, we're creating a market where people are more interested in health and health education, and there's better resources and more efficient training. So who we're really competing against is Netflix and TikTok. We're competing against companies that are just pure entertainment that are, I think, not in the same level of, okay, let me truly understand this condition or how this drug works. And in some ways, osmosis has contributed, like we've benefited from the fact that people's attention spans have shortened and they demand more from their learning experience than they did when they were just given a textbook and said, hey, read this. We grew on YouTube. We have 2.4 million subscribers on YouTube because we have five to 15 minutes short engaging videos that have sound effects and memes, keep people's attention and get them excited. But I worry because you are also being pushed into TikTok. And so like, can we really teach the side effects of bleomycin in a 15 second TikTok reel? Like maybe we can and we're trying, but it, where does this go eventually? And so we're really thinking a lot about attention spans and how do we, in this very noisy world we live in, how do we cut through that and find the signal? I recommend to the readers, Cal Newport's books, Deep Work, Digital Minimalism and the World Without Email because I certainly am finding myself super distracted. I just deleted several apps on my phone this past week because I just realized it was taking too much time. For the sake of our brains and what we can do best, I think our learners, are from whether they're kindergartners all the way to practicing physicians, ideally we need to help them find signal more than noise. That's such an interesting point about ed tech when you speak to that shit, because when you think of clinicians at all levels, whether you're a doctor all the way to a medical assistant, you don't have a lot of time and you want to spend as much time with your, with your patient and family. And we all know of the burnout issues. And I think when you, when you're a startup from the very beginning of how you develop your product, if you're in ed tech or health tech or the intersection of both, you've got to always think about who's going to use it. And how are they going to use it? And how have you developed it in a way that allows them to do their job more effectively? Uh, and I always go back to the fact that oftentimes we, we develop things in the way we think it's going to work, but we've got to develop it in the way that they are going to use it. And to your point, you developed it based on your own experience, but you've also developed it with others that have also had that same experience. So you literally from soup to nuts have developed a solution with knowing the problem. And at all times you've reiterated, you've innovated, you've changed things to make sure that you're laser focused. And we've seen that. I'm curious, there's a lot of hype right now, obviously around health equity. And I know health equity is something that osmosis has been very clear from the very beginning. There's a lot of startup conversation around health equity. Uh, if you were giving advice to an individual that's thinking in that space, or even if they have a product, but they also want to deal with that, what would you say to them to make sure that it's done for impact, for authentic impact? Yeah, what, we'll, what you find is that there's all, every couple of years have these buzzwords that come out, right? You add blockchain to your company name and you're going to get a valuation increase, right? And it's funny, I'm watching that we crashed on Apple about the story of WeWork and how they've literally tried find, finding how to make a real estate co-working space company into a tech SaaS tech company to attract SoftBank investment. Obviously, it's dramatized, glamorized. It's probably not as fair as it probably should be. But certainly, I think health equity, there's genuine reasons we need to invest in making things more approachable and equitable. COVID made that super clear in the U.S. and globally. In the, in the U.S. and most places, the pandemic seems like a memory now. 
knock on wood. Most people, you go into the restaurants, you go into planes, even not wearing masks, nobody's checking, It's things are looking better. But in much of the world, they haven't gotten vaccinated, right? Like they're still having these issues. And so equity is a global issue. Equity is a zip code issue. And there's examples of companies that have done it in legitimate good ways, like companies that have lowered the cost enough so it's accessible. And I think that's one of the winners of COVID in terms of health equity. There's companies that are doing value-based medicine. Like we've had Chris Chen at Chen, uh, Chen Med, City Block. We had Dr. Toya Najayi on, who have literally built their business models in the zip codes that need the most help that traditionally have been underserved as far as equity goes. One of the other reasons we joined Elsevier is that from a content perspective and information perspective, they walk the walk as far as improving diversity, equity, and inclusion among their resources. Literally just today on LinkedIn, I posted about the BBC article that came out this week, highlighting the 3D anatomy, uh, complete anatomy's first female body. So for hundreds of years that we've learning, been learning about anatomy, it's been all based on the male model. And you don't just, uh, the joke is you, you don't just put a uterus into the pelvis and that's a female. Take the male pelvis, put a uterus in it, and then you have a female model. That's not how it works. There's legitimate differences, not just between genders, but races, between, um, the, there's just differences between people of the same rate, the same age and same ethnicity and whatnot. And so being, finding an organization that walks the walk is key and being an organization that walks the walk, because if you're finding yourself just slapping blockchain onto your name or slapping equity into your name or what you do and not actually knowing the issues and educating yourself about the issues, I think that's just a recipe for disaster because it may eventually come out that you're hypocritical about things. Just try avoiding that at all costs. Yeah. And then your point's a good one, because I know in osmosis, you've also been intentional around, you have to be thoughtful around the different cultural backgrounds and how medicine has to be applied to them in a way that's understood by them. And that BBC article is interesting, but, but I would challenge it under the, under the wonderful tutelage of our assistant secretary of health and say, we need to actually really make sure that we're looking at non-gender individuals as well, because their healthcare needs are very different. And so it can't just be male, female, we've got to be thoughtful. And so Dr. Levine has trained us well here in Pennsylvania to be very thoughtful around that at all times. And I, I know osmosis has certainly been, certainly has heeded Dr. Levine's guidance in the work that you all do as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good point. Thanks for mentioning that. And I agree. I think that's also being worked on as the non-binary models. And, and one thing I wouldn't want to say high level is that like, these are important developments, but one thing I've said very clearly to our osmosis teammates and emails here now about D, DEI in general we need to respect and understand and highlight the things that make us different, right? Because that's truly, people need to be able to bring in their authentic selves to work, to the clinic, et cetera. However, I think especially in a polarized environment like we are right now in society, we also need to focus on the things that make us the same. So one of my favorite GIFs or animations that Osmosis has made is this one where it shows, it's like an X-ray of the heart, or it's a, yeah, an X-ray of the heart and you can see the, the outline of the heart. And then the people holding the X-ray change. So it can be based on age, gender, ethnicity, et cetera. And so ultimately, yeah, our heart sizes may be a bit different and there may be differences in the molecular level, like genes are a bit different, but 99. like what, 9% of our, like, so it's something crazy are aligned. And I think the more we can focus on the things that make us the same, our shared mortality, our shared being on the planet together, that we're, we only have one planet to live on, the better, I think, for society. So it's a balance between DEI and unity. You bring up such a good point, because it's actually a point that for founders, it all comes about to building community. Whether you're building an ed tech solution or a health tech solution, in the end, 
it really is about bringing people together to advance something or to improve something. You're right. I mean, building community historically can be done in very different ways, or I should say various different ways. Obviously, it's become more challenging in a polarized environment, but but we all know, to your point on equity, today it's more global than anything. Even your own product, you're doing work in how many different countries. So the reality of this is that when a founder has an idea, they've got to think global because they may have more interest in one country, even then, even though they're originated in another country. And it's such an important point where you can then build community around that concept. I love that. Yeah. And that's what Niraj's title of running community at Product 10X is important. It's so critical because ultimately, again, what we discussed is like, we're all here for a finite amount of time with any luck, 80 plus years. And ultimately the studies show very clearly that the things that make people happiest are the amount of the number and depth of deep relationships they have, knowing that they can call someone who has their back. And so that can happen. I was just talking to a founder the other day who's going through a lot of issues. Her child is in surgery. Her mom has dementia. There's all these issues happening. We're humans. One of our teammates, her father just passed away two days ago, right? Ultimately, whether or not we get a deal or we do another webinar or we get another 10,000 users, those things matter for the business. But for our long-term happiness, knowing that you have people around you who have your backs and finding a way to depolarize a world that's super polarized, which is again, why I love DEI initiatives, but I want to temper them and say, look, we just have to keep focusing because yeah, we at Osmosis will celebrate Asian American heritage, but then it'll be, oh, are we Japanese? Are we Chinese? Are we Vietnamese? Like, it'll, there's always ways, even in India, I'm not Indian, I'm Sindhi, right? Sure, you can keep subdividing us, but ultimately I'm Indian, right? <laughs> you know, and ultimately I'm a human. I'm a war, I'm a person. And so I think I just want to keep, I want to push back a little on, and William Irvine will say the same stuff. Scott Galloway, these great thinkers I really respect say similar thing. Yeah. I know. I hear you. Now I'm one that gets into a lot of good trouble on this topic and will continue because uh, I'm also a firm believer that those with white privilege, which I am, has to be the one that's actually going to call these issues on the carpet, but you have to do it diplomatically. I mean, I always talk about, particularly in the healthcare and education space with founders that you can embed equity and you can embed a commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion without having it become an issue. It just means to your point, you can't have an agenda. It has to be improving something or enhancing something. It can't come necessarily with a built agenda. And so it's just about that authenticity. In interest of time, because I know Niraj will have another question. I want to ask you one question that I think is, is pretty important when we think about not just the work that you've done, but also the work your organization does and also coming into Elsevier is with the great resignation, the great reshuffling. And so much occurring within the space in, in, in healthcare, where we have more generations in the workforce than we've ever had before. But we have so many people who have been, uh, in many ways, the giants of our healthcare system retiring. Yes, we have more medical school enrollments based on data than we've seen in quite some time. We have more nursing school enrollments than we've seen points in time. But we know people don't always make it through. And we know burnout is real for medical students and nursing students than people ever truly realize. What have you thought about in that space to really make sure? Uh, collectively, we're doing all we can to prepare for what's needed. And what can startups be thinking about if they're involved in that ecosystem to further support that? Yeah, it's a really important topic and made even more salient because of the pandemic in the last few years. Elsevier uh, released this Clinicians of the Future report, which we've highlighted. Over 8,000 clinicians around the world have, or from over 150 countries were surveyed. And there's some really good things like tell Elsevier to stay. We got to do a better job of training our students in telehealth and digital health. 
But then there were a lot of worrisome things, like one in four healthcare providers are looking to leave the profession by 2024 based on surveys. And it's a very big challenge because that we can train more healthcare professionals, there's more enrollments, as you mentioned, but can we actually get them through? And then can we get them to stay? Because when other companies are offering $20 an hour to move boxes around, clean restaurants, whatever it may be, versus you're getting $15 an hour or even $20 an hour to pick up bedpans to move elderly patients from point A to point B. Very challenging kind of work. Just the economics don't make sense to go into these fields. So I think it's important to use technology. At osmosis, we obviously are trying to use top technology and content to train people more efficiently, take a four-year med school, make it in three years as we've done and helped with at NYU, at University of Vermont and other programs. So make it more efficient. But then we also need to do better jobs of extending our providers. So I love the fact that there's improved scope of practice. We work with a ton of PA programs, physician associate now programs. Physician associates are very well qualified as our NPs to do a lot in healthcare. Same with dietitians, nutritionists, health coaches. And so the more we can take that and then even go all the way to the patient, as I mentioned, because ultimately we will not have enough endocrinologists for all the diabetic people with diabetes out there. We just won't, it's not gonna happen. And so it's important that we figure out ways to inter intervene before people get full-blown diabetes. And that goes all the way to, to training the parents, training the students, getting more of the let's move type campaigns in place so that we do more preventative medicine as opposed to reactive medicine, which is how our healthcare system is set up and why people are getting so burned out. Thank you for that. Jim, I'd love to obviously go a little deeper into this and from the founder's perspective, especially, how do you see the future of EdTech and HealthTech or the intersection of both of them coming to fruition and how should founders prepare for that? Yeah, ultimately everyone has a body, which is what Osmosis says. It's everyone has a body, so everyone cares for someone. So everyone is involved in health tech or healthcare, right? Because if you have a body, you need health, you have you, you should be invested in it. Same with education, because ultimately we need people to be productive members of society and civically engaged members of society. So even though a lot of AI and or will take over the need to rote memorize or do all these things that we used to spend, a lot, we still actually spend a lot of money teaching, we need to change the education curriculum systems so that people are more, more workforce ready and just happier people in general. Because I think there will be an abundant period when people just won't have enough work to do. That's where we're looking at four-day work weeks, three-day work weeks, what are people going to do in that interstitial time? Or is everyone just going to be living in the metaverse and watching Netflix? And so I think we got to find ways that healthcare and education and people involved in building companies in those spaces in particular to provide meaning and purpose to people. I think there's a big company to be built at the intersection of healthcare and education tech that manages to do that in a compelling way for students starting in kindergarten. And if we did, that would be a really big idea and a really important contribution to society. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much for interesting and insightful conversationship and really appreciate your time and insights. Yeah, Niraj and Jeffrey, thanks so much and great work with all the stuff you're doing at Product 10X. I look forward to being in touch. One, one last thing I'll say is if any of your founders or listeners are interested in contacting me, I love mentoring, advising, being helpful wherever possible. Jeffrey introduced me to a gentleman named Taylor Freeman, who's building an awesome company called Axon Park. So I love doing that stuff. Obviously, time limited. I'm Shiv at osmosis.org or just find me on LinkedIn. I'm the, I think I'm the only Shiv Iglani on LinkedIn. Well, Shiv, thank you. And obviously, thank you for what you and your team do at Osmosis. I've seen the power and the impact and I look forward to seeing the continued work, especially with severe supporting you as well. So thank you for all that you do as well. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you, guys. Take care. Sure. Thank you.